My name's Thomas. It's um, good to see lots of you again. Um, good to meet some of you for the first time. I used to be around here a lot, and now I'm not here at all, <laughs> apart from now and again. Um, we're in the middle of our series in Revelation. It's called Sign of the Times. Um, and we want to be real this morning. It feels like the world is shaking at the moment. These are uncertain times that we are living in. These are strange times for a lot of us. The world seems like a volatile place. The world seems like a tough place to keep on keeping on sometimes, to really hope for the future. And for a lot of us, the kind of the tragedy that happened in Manchester earlier this week is a bit too real. You know, headlines will come. Headlines go, sometimes we'll click on that link, sometimes we won't, but there is no avoiding what's happened just hours away. You know, people will know friends, children that were in that concert on that night. My sister-in-law was in theatre with people removing shrapnel from people's bodies. There's so many innocent lives were lost in such an inhumane fashion. It's such a devastatingly sad thing to have happened. And we mourn with the families that have lost their children and have lost loved ones. And we stand against evil in this world. We stand against terrorism in our world. We pray for the people whose job it is to look after victims and to keep this place safe. But as well as that, a lot of, a lot of us are asking, where is God? Just where is God in the middle of all of this? Where is God in the middle of our world that is shaking? What is God really up to in the midst of all of this? Is he actually doing anything? Is he able to to really intervene and help? And we see in Jesus that our God mourns with the broken. That he weeps alongside those who weep. And we know that he is doing that this week. And that is powerful. And that matters. But even more questions... Even if we believe that, is that even enough? Is that enough? We know what we can see. That the world is shaking, that we've read the articles, that we've seen the images on the news. But is there a bigger story of what is really happening in our world than just what we can see? Is there really a bigger story of what's happening in our world that that what we can just see. Because we, for us, we live in the here and now, don't we? we? We care about our brothers and sisters deeply around this world. We care about the world that we live in, and we are desperate for peace in the here and the now. And it hurts a lot when that's not our reality, when that's not our experience. But it's not really a very fashionable thing these days in Christianity, is it, to talk about heaven, to talk about hell. I know personally, I talk about it very seldomly. Um, it's not something we do. In the last sort of 100, 200 years, there were some people who got really, really into this book of Revelation. Maybe a little bit too much, perhaps. And all they talked about was the fire of hell and the pearly gates of heaven. And maybe, just maybe, forgot to see that King, God's kingdom was breaking in to the here and now, to the everyday of our world. And so the church got a little bit obsessed at times with the fire and the brimstone messages and the different interpretations of every single little number in this book of Revelation. And this meant this, definitely, and that meant that. 
And every few years, um, some of you guys are a little bit older than me, but every few years, somebody would pop up on your TV sets and would say, get ready, because Jesus is coming back. And without a shadow of a doubt, it's going to be in 1983. And then they'd say, ah, I just got my calculations a little bit wrong. Sorry about that. Easy mistake to make. It's definitely going to be in 1987. And then everyone said, okay, well, maybe it's not 1987, but it's definitely going to be the millennium. Yeah? It's definitely going to be the year 2000. But they were wrong. And a lot of this thinking has lost some of its credibility in the church. And, and so, in a way, we've swung the other way and we've got a hold of God's kingdom breaking into the here and now. And that is so important to us as a church here at Central. We look to see what God is doing and we get involved in it. But with every shift in our understanding, we risk throwing the baby out with the bathwater. As the people of God, we are called to live in the here and now, yes, but with the clearest picture of what is yet to come. And here's the truth for the believer. In the middle of chaos, in the middle of tragedy, tragedy is not the final story of the Christian faith. Death does not have the final say in this world. Even though the enemy still limps around our world looking to injure The enemy will not prevail. And that is true for some of the people that we've lost. And and we mourn with those who mourn, but yet we hope strongly in what is yet to come. We don't process events like the world processes, because to paraphrase our King Jesus In this world, there will be trouble. We should expect it. There will be death. There will even be these horrendous atrocities. But take heart, church of Jesus Christ, because Jesus has overcome the world. He has overcome the enemy. He has overcome evil and death. And that's the context that we read today's vision in. We read it as exiles living in this broken world. And that means that this stuff that we read is really important. That revelation really matters. Um, So let's read it together. We're going to read from chapter 11 today. So if you've got a Bible, open it up. It will be behind me on the screen as well. Revelation chapter 11. It's titled, The Two Witnesses. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar, and count the worshippers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will give my power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they're prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. 
Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from people, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. We'll stop there for now. I'm just going to pray and pray together. God, would you speak to us this morning? Would you illuminate what you want to, to bring out to this church at this time? God, thank you that your word, even when it's as crazy as this, is living and active. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you love us and that you want to speak to us. Amen. Amen. So we have about 15 minutes to get to the bottom of whatever on earth we have just read. <laughs> Can we do it? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> will we give it a go? Yes, we will. Um, so reading any particular meaning on top of Revelation can be a risky business, as we've seen. We do so with caution, and we do so with all sorts of caveats. And, and before we try and read into that text again, I, I want us to clarify what John actually sees in this vision he is given. Maybe some of you have never ever read that before and have just thought, are you serious? Is that actually in the Bible? It is. I didn't just make it up. Um, so John, who for the first 10 chapters of this vision, he's been kind of largely a spectator. He's been watching on uh, what God is doing. He's given a job to do. He has handed this measuring rod and asked to measure the temple, but not the outer parts of the temple and not the rest of the city. This outer part of the temple the rest of the city are going to be ransacked for three and a half years. And along come these two witnesses. The Greek word is martyrs, witnesses or martyrs. They come dressed in sackcloth. And sackcloth are the clothes that you wear when you're mourning the state that the world is in. And, and these witnesses come to prophesy. They prophesy um, not just for 10 minutes, but for 1,260 days, or 42 months, or three and a half years. But for these guys, they're prophesying, and that's more of a daily activity, so we'll go with 1,260 days. And John tells us a bit more about these witnesses. They are olive trees, they are lampstands, and they are powerful fire-breathing prophets, and they do not suffer fools. They mercilessly devour their enemies. So central prayer team, do not get any ideas. These powerful witnesses of God do not have it all their own way. They are attacked by the beast that comes from the abyss, that emerges from hell, and they are killed. 
They are publicly humiliated by having their corpses laid out in the public square where the whole world laughs at them for three days until God breathes his life back to them after three days, which may ring a few bells for those of us who are familiar with the Jesus story. And finally, God says, come up here, and they ascend to heaven in a cloud again in the same manner that Jesus did. So that's the vision. Hopefully you're still with me with a kind of brief explanation. And let's be honest, this is a level up from Sunday school. There's a reason that they didn't go over this when you were three years old. This is more like Picasso than it is just coloring by numbers. It seems abstract. It seems strange. We wonder why, <laughs> why we're reading this on a Sunday morning. But this is what John saw. This is what God revealed to him. Powerful witnesses arriving with a death and resurrection experience who were eventually called home by God. So let's unpack a few things as we go along. Firstly, why measure the temple? Did God want to fit new carpets in his temple? Not as far as I'm aware. This image would have led John to really reflect on the temple as set apart for God's glory. Set apart for God's glory. The early church saw themselves largely as a, the continuation of the Jewish temple. There was an immense importance placed on that physical building of the temple in the Old Testament. And so the importance of that was then transferred to them as God's people in that first century. And the measuring of this temple here is God's way of saying, I see you. I know you, I've got you, I love you, and you are mine. God says, look, John, I've measured out how many, of there, how many of you there are, and I know exactly what you need. This is encouragement for the church. In the middle of this vision, in the middle of this chaos, God has not forgotten about his people. He has not forgotten about his plan for the world. It might feel like chaos here. It definitely felt like chaos in the vision in the first century church. But God has not forgotten about those who stand as his witnesses. Even in the church as we make mistakes, even as we get it badly wrong, even as some of us struggle with, am I really supposed to be part of this organized institution? He sees us, he knows us, and he knows exactly what we need. These two witnesses, are they actually two people who are yet to be born who will do exactly these things down to the finest detail in the year 4056? I don't know if they are. But what if God was actually showing John another picture of his church? The church, i.e. witnesses to God's power in a time of tribulation on the earth. They're dressed in sackcloth. We, the church, mourn the state that the world is in. We, the church, long for Jesus' kingdom to come and break in more fully. We long for people to respond to God's love more readily. And we also lament for what we see happening around us. What if the church's role was to emulate these witnesses in prophesying to the world that we live in? Not prophesying as in just trying to predict what's going to happen in X amount of years' time. Not just standing on street corners talking about the hellfire, but, but speaking real truth to the powers of this world. If you think about it in a first 
century context, telling the Caesars, telling the powers in Rome to repent because Jesus is the real, true king. And these witnesses um, are seen as John, seen by John as olive trees and as lampstands. And now, I know what you're all thinking. You're thinking, haven't I seen this before? Didn't I read something about that in my quiet time as I studied the fourth chapter of Zechariah the other morning? And the answer is yes, you're right. Well done, everybody. I'm proud of you. Carl spoke in week one about lampstands being as churches. And olive trees in Zechariah and in lots of other points in scripture as well are symbolic of God pouring out his spirit and anointing into his church. And here's the thing, God's church, his witness, his lampstand is never ever supposed to be disconnected from his olive trees, the place of outpouring, the place of anointing. He anoints us to be prophets, he anoints us to be priests, he anoints us to have authority in the places that we dwell, even in the midst of chaos. This is what God said um, to Zechariah. He said, this is the word of God to Zerubbabel, not by power, not by might, but by my burning spirit, said the Lord. And then Zechariah answered and said, then Lord, what are the two olive trees on either side? And he answered again and said, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. One is Joshua, one is Zerubbabel, and they are my ministers and my witnesses in the day of the great restoration. Not by might, not by power, but by an outpouring of God's spirit is the only way that we're supposed to stand and witness as his church. Can we just pray for a second? I want to pray for our church here. I want to pray for the world, the church in the world. Um, we don't need to wait to the end. Let's just pray. Lord, we want to ask you that you'd pour out your spirit on this church. Lord, as we look to witness for you, Lord, as we look to witness to a world that is broken, to a world that is shaking, we just ask that you'd anoint us, give us everything we need, And fill us up with your spirit, Lord. And Lord, we pray for the church in the world. We pray that we wouldn't look to be doing things by clever strategies, with big numbers, or cleverness, Lord, but just under your anointing, under your direction, Holy Spirit. We need you. Amen. Amen. It, it doesn't matter how bad things get in the world. And this scripture, I think, affirms that things will get hard. God always has witnesses in his world. There was complete and total depravity in the world, and he raised up Noah to lead into a new era. The whole of Jerusalem was shaking, and he kept 12 disciples to kick off this global mission, this global awakening. And in the vision that John has, we have a witnessing church that speaks truth to power that proclaims with miracles and signs and wonders the truth of their God to an unbelieving world, who accomplishes it all in the power of the anointing of God, pointing to the God who one day will restore all things. So often in this world we feel desperate. If you're even the slightest bit like, like me, 
You may have read news reports. You may have sat there in front of the TV this week and the last few years, read reports of refugees drowning again, another blast in Egypt, another horrific thing happening in Syria. And you think, what do I do? How am I supposed to even feel, let alone respond? Where do I even begin? And if you're anything like me, you've maybe once, maybe many times had this feeling of just total helplessness. And we have to lament and we have to to cry out to God and say, this isn't the way things are supposed to be. But the truth, and sometimes the embarrassing truth for many believers, is that we don't realize that we are the ones who have the keys to an alternative narrative. That we are called to be these witnesses. That we have been called to prophesy to the world that Jesus' kingdom is coming. And we don't always like the idea of being these witnesses, do we? When we take this witness thing really seriously, we are not going to be able to be friends with everybody. Verse 8 says that their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun. You know, maybe you've planned your, your funeral, you've chosen your hymns, you know exactly what type of quiche you're going to have. You do not want your corpse sitting out in Princess Street with the whole city laughing at you. Persecution seems to be part, though, of the story of the witnessing church. And that doesn't mean that we disengage. It doesn't mean that we set ourselves against the world. No, we're called to love like Jesus. We're called to get involved in the here and now. We're, We're called to lead the charge of that prayer, thy kingdom come. But also, we cannot just assimilate and become part of the furniture and just blend in because we have a a new reality to proclaim to this world. We extend this invitation to everyone to come and follow Jesus. We position ourselves towards a returning king. And in the midst, even of tragedy, God's witnesses, i.e. me and us, we can speak out hope. Persecution will take place when we fulfill our God-given mandate to witness. But it's not only about the here and now because we have faith in what we cannot see and we have faith of what is to come. We read Revelation 11 in our liberal, free nation and we so easily forget what it was like to be a first century follower of Christ. Hounded, oppressed, marginalized. We read Revelation in a pretty free, liberal nation, and we so easily forget that there are brothers and sisters of ours around this world right now who are speaking truth to power, who are proclaiming Jesus and his kingdom, and like these witnesses in Revelation, pay the price with their lives. And why are there two witnesses in this image? I don't want us to get sucked in too much into overall, literal interpretations, but But God never called us to witness on our own. He never called us to witness on our own. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out his disciples like sheep among wolves, but also still two by two. And God calls us to witness in community, not as lone rangers, but in communities. Which makes you wonder how much of a witness are we when we as a church over the world are so divided? Next time we speak badly of another church or somebody who thinks something slightly different from us, does it actually achieve anything? 
Or does it just discredit the witness of God's precious body in difficult times? So I appreciate some of this stuff is pretty heavy. This isn't maybe what we speak about every week here at Central. And and my guess is that there are broadly three types of people in the room at this stage kind of responding to some of this call to be the witnessing church. There's maybe type one who, as you're sitting there, your legs are shaking. You're thinking, how long has Thomas got to speak? Because I am ready to go. Send me out, Lord. Anoint me with your oil. I am covered in it. Fire of God fall. I have washed out my mouth and I am ready for pyrotechnics. Maybe that's you. If so, fantastic, wonderful. And maybe there's a big bunch of us who are thinking, do you know what? I read this and I think, I just want to come to church. I don't want any trouble. I want to go to heaven when I die. I want to have a relationship with God now. But I do not want my corpse laid out in the public square. Thank you very much. I do not want any hassle with any beasts. I just want to be a Christian and just get on with it and live a quiet life. And if that's you, amazing. And some of us are in another category and we're wondering if any of this is actually true at all. We're wondering, what on earth am I reading? Maybe as we see events unfold in the world, we're holding on to a thread of faith as it stands. From one crisis to another, we think, how can I be convinced about this future when, when in the here and now it's so hard? And whichever one of those three, or maybe there's something else that you identify with, we're so glad that you are here. And this is the family of God. And, and we're all part of this weird and wonderful living body of Christ called to be the church. But maybe as we close, God wants to restore some courage and restore some conviction into our hearts as his disciples, as his church today. So we're only halfway through the series um, in Revelation, but I can't keep this a cliffhanger forever. We read in verse 15 that the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. God's kingdom is breaking into our broken world. It has started. And when you look hard enough, you can see bits of it spring up. But one day it will come in full. And we can take hope in this. And the wicked will be judged by Jesus, not by us. And the people, it says in Revelation 11, who've remained steadfast will be rewarded. And at the end of this chapter, John sees this final vision. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. This is verse 19. And within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. And even though this sounds more like kind of summer in Edinburgh or the end of an Indiana Jones movie. It kind of sums up a lot of what John experiences as he walks through these visions. You know, I haven't said that we, um, all of this is literally going to happen one day. I haven't said that all of this has already happened hundreds of years ago. But maybe this is the reality that we have to live in until the kingdom of Jesus reigns in full. And so the question then is, how do we set ourselves 
in recognition that hailstorms will come, that earthquakes are happening in the here and now. And if you look again at verse 19, it says, In heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. We center ourselves around the covenant that we have in Jesus Christ. We encourage one another to witness out of the new identity that we have in Christ. Either this means something, either this means maybe everything for our lives and the way that we set up ourselves and our families and the way that we lead, or it doesn't mean a lot. There is an enemy prowling. There is somebody who's looking to steal the joy of new life in Jesus. And and he wants us either, two things, the enemy wants us either to just disengage with the world and say, well, thank goodness heaven's coming and I'm just going to buckle myself in and wait until he comes because he wants us to miss out on the kingdom that is breaking in on this world. Or the second thing, he wants us to get so disillusioned with today that we completely give up on having hope for tomorrow. So in the middle of all this, we are called to center our hope around the person of Jesus. That's where we started this series. That's where it's going to finish. We lift our eyes to the resurrected Christ. That's where so many of these images of heaven with people gathered around his throne, worshiping him. He has all we need to get us started on a full life. His spirit is poured out on us, the church, to sustain us, to keep us going. As we said at the beginning, for the believer, tragedy is not the final story of the Christian faith. Death does not have the final say in this world, even as we rediscover what it is to lament. We have hope. And in a moment, we're going to gather around communion and That's an amazing way to respond, to recommit ourselves to the covenant that we have in Christ. But I want to ask just a couple of questions that might help us respond to God, either individually or maybe as a church, in your MC, whatever it is, your context is. Where am I placing the weight of my faith right now? Where am I placing the weight of my faith right now? Am I placing all of my faith in the political systems and the leaders of this hour of this world? Am I aware enough of King Jesus' kingdom breaking in so that I might receive what it is to walk with him? Do I spend enough time focusing on what is to come so that I might have hope for today? And where do I need to re-engage with the here and now and work for love, work for peace, work for justice before that final seventh trumpet call happens. And it will. And Jesus reappears and all things will be made new. So we're going to respond in worship. And um, after that, we're going to respond in sharing the Lord's Supper. Um, but maybe we can stand together if we're able and then we'll just pray together for a bit. So let's just focus um, our minds and our hearts on the resurrected Christ, the one who we can have hope in. He isn't just distant, 
Next week, we, we celebrate Pentecost and we remember that he has chosen to dwell with us, his people, by his spirit. And we just ask, Spirit of Jesus, come. Come and speak to us right now. We know that you've been speaking already. But also, Spirit of Jesus, come and break into this broken world. We know that if we don't pray, it's really hard for you to break in and partner with us. And Lord, we pray as we work for, for justice, as we work for the good of the world that we live in, as we mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep, we pray that you'd pour out your spirit on us, that we would follow you as you lead us, Lord Jesus, and that fear wouldn't hold us back, that disillusionment wouldn't hold us back because we have hope for the future. And God, give us courage, give us strength. It is so hard to witness for you in an unbelieving generation as what we say becomes increasingly irrelevant sometimes or it feels like that. Help us to encourage one another to be the body of Christ. We want to just pray for those who have found this week just incredibly difficult and maybe they've thought, this is silly, I wasn't even involved in what's happening but actually our hearts are just breaking. And Lord, thank you that that's part of our image. Um, created in the image of you, you are a compassionate God. And that you love it when we empathize with those who are hurting. You love it when we pray for those who are mourning. And for those of us who felt just unable to deal with what's happening, just pray that you'd breathe your hope in, but also just your encouragement to know that you've replaced our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh and that you love it when we engage in the here and now of the world that you love so much that you sent your son to live here, to offer up his life and to bring resurrection life into this world. So Lord, we worship you. Come and speak to us. Come and fill us again. Amen.